Welcome to the Glow Week Podcast, where we talk to international expansion experts from around the world to make it faster and easier for you to take your business global. This Glow Week Podcast is brought to you by Clever Mail. Clever Mail's worldwide legal business addresses and virtual office solutions help you rapidly internationalize your business. Learn more at clevermail.com. You're listening to the Globig International Expansion Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Anka Corbin, the founder and CEO of Globig. Today's hot topic is about business intelligence and getting the data you need to make good decisions in each of your international markets. And our guest today is Richard Leggett. Richard, welcome. Richard is the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group. It's a leader in providing actionable intelligence on international markets to companies expanding into and operating around the world. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Anke. So tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you become interested in market intelligence and being you know, the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group? Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it a, a relatively short story, but um, I, I, my career has kind of three chapters. And I started, uh, as many folks in our industry do, uh, in the consulting industry and uh, learned a lot uh, from the consulting uh, chapter of my career. And then I went to Wall Street and I worked uh, as an equity research analyst and also in investment banking. I was a managing director in London and in New York at Goldman Sachs, and I covered the professional services sector. So I, I spent time kind of analyzing uh, services companies, both consulting companies and uh, what was a, at that time an emerging category of research and advisory services firms and really fell in love with the business model because I saw it as an um, uh, incredibly valuable uh, input stream into uh, decision making. And I also fell in love with it because of the economics of the business model, kind of recurring revenue subscription-based models. And I also saw it as potentially highly disruptive to traditional consulting uh, businesses. So uh, the third chapter of my career was an opportunity a private equity firm was running, had bought a, uh, a research business, and they were looking for somebody to run it. And uh, uh, and they offered me the CEO job. So I, I decided to leave the world of, of banking and finance to go on the other side of the table and actually become an operational executive. And that's kind of how I got into into. And this is my third company. Uh, and I've uh, uh, and probably the most interesting and most exciting one because of the topic matter that we cover and the types of clients we get to work with, uh, and also their time horizons, which tend to be a lot longer term than your classic financial investor time frame. You know, our clients tend to be big, big uh, and small companies that are making long term decisions, strategic decisions about their international expansion. It's very interesting. Now. I think there's a lot of things I really like about Frontier Strategy Group, and, and I especially love how you do have things that are available for companies of different sizes. Tell us some more about Frontier Strategy Group, and are you okay with calling it FSG, just because it's <laughs> a long word, a long Absolutely. name? Absolutely, yeah, that's, what, that's what's on our door when you uh, come into our offices. So Fantastic. No so, let's, uh, so FSG, let's talk about what kind of research you provide and what you're specializing in. Well, I really like your uh, your introduction. It, it, it captured what we do in a nutshell in terms of actionable intelligence to really help companies expand internationally and really inform their decision making. I'd say if I if I drill down a little bit further, you know, I, I think 
we're specifically focused on, uh, and I think what makes us unique is uh, emerging markets as a primary area of focus, but we do focus on all high growth markets for our clients and their and their expansion markets. But what we found in the, the heritage of the firm where we started was really around helping clients uh, understand what's happening in some of the developing markets around the world where information was uh, unreliable and, and uneven and, and scarce. And so there was a thirst for uh, making data-informed decisions about market entry or about market expansion for these markets, and not a whole lot of information. So that's where that's where our roots are and our, our pedigree in terms of being uh, a research-first uh, firm, if you will. So how um, do you get your a, research? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, we have uh, a dedicated team of researchers. So everybody that uh, does research for FSG as an analyst is very uh, is an in-house person, um, and we have uh, researchers covering. Uh, we organize by geographic practice, uh, so Asia Pacific um, and uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and then we have a global a global economics uh, team as well. And our research is uh, essentially a combination of bottoms-up analysis. So uh, a big part of what we do is is we um, try to understand these markets at the most granular level. So our researchers are first and foremost forecasting uh, outlooks and leading indicators for all of our markets. So there's a data component to what they're doing in terms of forecasting. But then a big chunk of what we do is primary research, both through client engagement and also through on-the-ground interviews with experts, uh, government officials, other executives, um, other other folks within the ecosystem that our clients would would operate in. And just to put it in, in perspective in terms of that primary research, we very much view our client as, base as a community, and so we do a lot of engagement. So unlike, I think, a lot of research firms, our analysts spend probably 40% of their time out and about talking to clients. Um, and just to put that in perspective, last year, the team had over 1,600 client discussions. Uh, those might be briefings to leadership teams, or they might just be one-on-one -on -one discussions and questions, uh, answering questions. But through that, all of that discussion and, and primary research, we're able to marry our bottoms-up forecasting with uh, qualitative on-the-ground perspectives. And I think that's unique in, in the market. Absolutely. What are some of the indicators or even like the primary indicators that you're tracking so that people can understand specifically the sorts of data that would be very helpful? Oh, sure. Yeah. So our, so from a data perspective, we, we built an entire data infrastructure. We call that frontier data. And it's a, it's a data infrastructure that consists, I think today, something like 367,000 data series. Uh, and we cover over 200 markets. And those markets are both country level and in some cases uh, at the sub-national level. So think about uh, province or state. And actually, just last week, we released data on 364 Chinese cities. And so we're getting more and more granular. And the data tends to be um, the uh, macroeconomic uh, leading indicators uh, in addition to demographic information, uh, and what we, we would sometimes call microeconomic indicators, um, they're, they're, they tend to be organized a bit more by industry categories, but we're careful not to, to describe them as industry data because it, it tends to be more reflective of industry leading indicators as opposed to industry trends themselves. And then we do we do a bunch of analysis around uh, what I'd call risk uh, indicators, so risk indices and that sort of thing. So it's a combination to give a real comprehensive view, broadly speaking, of the external environment uh, at the country, 
uh, sometimes uh, subnational category all the way down to cities, for example, China. Very interesting. Now, I know you have a lot of larger companies using your custom products. And one of the things that, that we were so excited about here at Globig is that you also created research products that are off the shelf and accessible for the startups and scale-ups and the small, medium-sized businesses around the world that we primarily assist. Uh, it's one of the first things I've seen that is so helpful to these companies because oftentimes they're really left on their own to go seek out data that's not readily available. Tell us about some of those products. Yeah, I'm happy to. And, and I'm glad you brought it up because um, we work with uh, today 230 active clients. Um, many of them are, are larger multinationals across different industries, but we actually believe that the uh, SME, I don't know if you use the term SME or SMB, we use SME, but the SME marketplace is incredibly uh, attractive uh, and underserved. Mm -hmm. And we think represents a, a, a sizable opportunity for FSG to be helpful given that everything we've done is kind of purpose built for executive uh, and executive decision making. And we think that there's a lot of collective learnings from our work with the MNC market that can be applied to high growth, smaller companies that help them, uh, you know, speed, speed time to market, avoid pitfalls and the like. And so um, we serve uh, SMEs in a handful of ways. I think the first and foremost, all of our major research studies uh, are available via our online store. So we were excited about that. We launched that last year, uh, and that's on our website. But the idea is that um, you know companies can buy by the drink, if you will, just to get to get uh, uh, some basic uh, information. But then we can offer also offer access to what we call our Frontier View platform. That's all of our information assets. So it's the data, analytical tools, and all of our research. Uh, on a subscription basis, and uh, and that can be uh, very much uh, at a at a at an attractive entry point for uh, an SME because we recognize that their um, their needs are different and that their their uh, constraints are are different as well. And then uh, there's two other ways. I think third, um, the starting price point for our fully integrated offering, I think, is quite reasonable vis-a-vis. -vis, let's say if you were to engage a consulting firm or, or try to hire another. Um, subscription-oriented research service because we offer so much more into our subscription than just content. We provide access to our analysts. We have access to events. There's a lot of other ways that for a small and medium-sized enterprise, you get uh, a full suite of, uh, of an offering. So that's a third way. And then finally, uh, when and if needed, we can also work on a consultative basis more at a project and because we, we tend to be able to be quite competitive rate-wise. So there, I think there's something for everyone across the full spectrum, depending on their size, your stage of maturity, uh, and what you're looking for uh, at any given time. Um, and that's, that's how we think about it strategically. I think that's very helpful and it does make you unique. So let's talk a little bit about what type of research is really most critical for some of the different phases that a company goes through. So, you know, let's first chat about if you're considering expanding into a market and you want to discover more information about it, it's not that easy to get really helpful business intelligence. So what do you find companies looking for mostly when they're looking to really assess a market? Yeah, I think it's it's a very good point because sometimes I use the term, uh, you know, what we don't want our clients to have to be is, is archaeologists to try to figure out where all the information is in order to be able to make uh, informed business decisions. So we, um, we 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 have a framework we think about internally that um, 
we, we kind of refer to it as the where to play, how to play, how to win framework, um, which is really uh, thinking, helping companies, depending on where they are on the maturity spectrum, uh, answer different questions that are necessary for proper uh, expansion and growth. But that framework is a nice overlay to way to think about it. So if you're just beginning to think about expansion into a new market, the first thing that we would advocate that you do is really think about that where to play question. And for that, it's all about market selection. And uh, we have methodologies and approaches where we can help clients think through um, how to do that quantitatively. Because we find even, you'd be surprised, even with large companies, um, you know, very what you would view as very sophisticated companies, uh, a lot of the way they've approached market expansion is is based on um, probably less around data-informed decisions and more around gut feel, um, prior experience of, uh, of the executive and that sort of thing, as opposed to looking at the, the landscape and saying, how do we prioritize these markets based on their size, based on their, uh, their growth profile, and also based on the, the stability. And the stability is quite important because, as we know, depending on uh, – well, actually, every market right now feels like it's not quite stable <laughs> uh, internally, right? I mean, look at, look at our own backyard here in the United States. And so, you know, really thinking of that framework um, is a very good way to get a first pass of, of prioritizing where to play. Um, and then based on that, you, you, you ultimately can then start to tier markets. And then based on your tiering, you start doing deeper dives in terms of what we consider the second category, which is the, uh, the how to play. You know, what, what do these markets really look like uh, from a, a competitive landscape, an operating environment, a regulatory environment? What should the go-to-market strategy be? Uh, and, and how do we make sure that we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for success? Um, and then the third phase of that is then, you know, the actual, you know, mobilizing and getting ready to make the investment in the market. Do you make it organically, inorganically? Uh, how do you staff uh, and organize yourself for success? How do you think about, um, uh, you know, uh, pricing, positioning of product, uh, and those types of things? So it's kind of a three-phased approach um, for, for most companies. And then even if you're more mature, you can still apply this framework because it's good to, we think as a best practice, revisit your portfolio and your portfolio allocation on a pretty regular basis because as we know, things change quickly as we've seen over the last uh, last several years. Absolutely. You know, we have a similar approach. We call them slightly something slightly different, but they have this same sort of categorizations. And really, I keep trying to help companies, you know, they have hypotheses around a lot of these things and, and how do you get better data and more data to either confirm your hypotheses or, you know, rule out some of the things that you assume instead of waiting until you're in the market. And those are very costly learnings at that point, right? It's very costly. And I think it's, and, and, and it's you know, there's the, the other issue is there's so much information overload um, in, in, you know, in the world today. Right. And so if you're a, uh, if you're a, an executive, you want to focus the majority of your energies on execution, but you've really got to pay close attention to what's happening outside of your four walls. Um, because there's a lot of, a lot of disruptors. And as a result of that, there's a lot of noise. And so how do you filter signal from noise? And that's something that, you know, we take pride in doing. Um, so it's not just about having data, it's about the right data and, and, and contextualizing that data into uh, what, we, what we often refer to in our research. I mean, one of the things I think that we, we try uh, always to do in our research is answer the so what, now what question. So it's not just good enough to 
uh, write about a, a given trend or a given market, it's important to give the implications for what does that mean for me uh, if I'm thinking about entering this market or if I'm think if I'm already in this market, how do I how do I interpret uh, and and adjust my strategy accordingly? I really like that about the data that you have as well because that was helpful for me when I was going through some of the reports. It wasn't just here's a lot of information. It was and here's how it will apply and here is in you know how it might impact certain things in the future and i thought okay i understand how this how i can utilize this information so yeah. yeah, I think gone are the days where we can kind of ring the doorbell of a client and they say, oh, my gosh, I've been waiting for you my whole life. I need information. I don't have it. It's, it's you know, if anything, the, the first response is I have too much information. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you help me? How do you help me narrow that down to what really matters? And, you know, the other thing, if you put your, yourself in the perspective of, a, of, a, of a, an executive, um, they're getting information, but they're also getting a lot of information from their own internal uh, networks, right? They hear from their, uh, so if you're a multinational, you hear a lot from your country managers. Sometimes you hear from your distributors or your channel partners. You're hearing from customers and everybody's got an agenda, right? Everybody's got a, a, a potential bias. And, you know, one of the things that I think is quite helpful is can you have, uh, you know, someone who's more neutral and unbiased that is a trusted uh, and, and har harmonized source of information for your for your company to make decisions because otherwise you really are subject to different different agendas. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. We we have a similar perspective on that as well. Is you know, how do you get the right information? How do you get enough information so that you can make those decisions you can feel confident about them? Um, let's talk about some of these specific trends and things that are happening. You had mentioned that there really isn't a market that's stable right now, and, and I think that's really true. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of assumptions that are floating around. We have no idea. I mean, even typical markets that we thought were fairly stable, like the EU, aren't, right, with Brexit and all the different... Um, votes that have been happening in countries and some have been going in one direction and some have been going into another. Um, I'd love for us to talk about a couple of different markets and just pick out some trends and, and what are, you know, what do you see happening out there? Some advice for where we are currently. Maybe we can start with Brexit and UK and then jump to the EU and, you know, take a look at a couple sure. other ones. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think the, the overarching theme that you, you mentioned, when we think about uh, expansion internationally, um, one of the things that's changed this year than in the past is that the developed markets themselves, so you know, Europe and, and the United States uh, in particular, um, are really shaping the demand on a global scale more so than ever before. And it's not because of the, the, the consumption or the demand engine. It's really driven out of the, the internals of, the, of those countries, the, you know, the political side of things. Uh, and that's a, that's a big change. So that makes it more challenging for the, the, the markets that you could depend on historically as pretty stable or predictable are behaving uh, very differently today. Mm -hmm. And, and and so you know, sometimes we joke that the, the developed markets have become emerging markets in, in some of their characteristics, and, and we're used to that, right? We're used to helping companies navigate that, but it's very unsettling for everybody um, that in, in markets where you usually can kind of depend on the stability internally, uh, you now now you need to really analyze that as well. So 
yeah. So if you wanted to, if you want to, where should we start? It, you, you, we can we can take a tour around the world. Um, let's do. It. Let's start want. with the UK, and then we'll jump over to the mainland. And I'd even really like to touch on the US and some of the Asian markets too. I think that would be really interesting. And and as you said, there's just so much going on, and and obviously we, we can't touch on all of it. And it, by tomorrow, it may be outdated, but it's quite fascinating. That's- yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Well, I think I think you know. So in the in the UK, I think that um, we've been uh, we we you know with the Brexit uh, and oftentimes these things happen. You'll get a lot of um, you'll get a lot of noise, and that creates a lot of immediate reaction. Uh, and then uh, and then as the dust starts to settle, you start to get a, a better understanding. So I think what we've been uh, pleasantly surprised by the. Uh, you know, what we saw was the immediate reaction and the negative immediate reaction to what feels like um, a, a bit more uh, steady state new normal, at least for the near term with with for the grudge to the, you know, to the to the UK's outlook. I think longer term, we think there's, you know, obviously going to be some, some impact and risk uh, as a result of Brexit. But for the most part, the, you know, the near term feels like it's uh, in generally uh, okay shape and that um, and that you know a lot of this is going to depend on the fluidity of how the actual exit from the EU occurs uh, and and the the sequencing so I suspect it'll be a, a bit volatile as we get information around different um, around the different categories to think about we have a really good framework for thinking through brexit and, and planning you know a lot of its contingency planning carefully if you're if you're a company um, and some of some of the uh, the biggest issues will become negotiating levers, and we'll have to watch those carefully. And I think, we'll, you know, unfortunately, everyone will get whipsawed around as the as the deadlines approach. But there's time, and so as time as there's time, it, it's not it's not an immediate uh, feeling of 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 doom as it was right when it right when the vote occurred. So I think people are getting used to it, and but I do think we'll see some impact once once it occurs to um to the to the GDP growth of the of the UK. Um, but you know, right now we we look at the UK as a fairly stable um, market that's going to grow, you know, somewhere between one and a half, two percent. Our bias is probably a little towards the upside, um, quite honestly, than on the downside in the near term. But longer term, I think, you know, the Brexit will have impact and will create some disruptions. Do you find that companies, and this is something that we found, and I want to see whether you're seeing that as well, is companies that have physical goods products are more concerned than digital companies. So they're still completely bullish it's it's a great market for them and you know everything that they're looking at is fairly stable but the companies that i see that do have uh, physical goods that need access to the the eu single market they're definitely they're more concerned they're considering other options they're probably not thinking of uk as their first um expansion opportunity is that have you seen that as well or is that not um, I think it's I think it's I think it's a fair concern, and I think it'll all come down to, um, you know, to 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 trade policy, right? It definitely is not going to be as easy as it was uh, as a single union, but I think I think a lot of it will depend on how it plays out. So we're not seeing a ton of concern around that topic right now, um, but I think it, it it's mostly out of a lack of information, and so there's contingency planning happening, but I don't see I don't see a panic. And I think for your for your clients, um, the the UK as a as a market is is a good depending on what stage again back to the maturity what stage they're at. The UK is always a great first market to enter because of 
um, because of the the natural um, ease of doing business vis-a-vis, you know, doing business in North America, for example. So mm-hmm. I don't see that materially changing as an end market, but as a uh, let's say as a hub for a broader Europe business or a broader EMEA business, I think the story uh, is still yet to be told. Um, and a lot of that will depend on physical goods and, and trade policies and the ease of moving those goods in and out of markets and tariffs and that sort of thing. And then the other bit is going to be around talent and your ability to, um, you know, to have the right talent pools uh, in, in for, for an EMEA uh, or a European strategy uh, as a as a as a hub or a headquarters, if you're if you're able to to you know have the same free flowing uh, labor force that you have today. Very interesting. What are some of the trends that you're seeing on the mainland and the EU? Anything between um, Eastern Bloc EU countries and Western Bloc EU countries? You know that sort of thing. Or are there other trends? Yeah. So I, I think so. I think the way we think about this is that we're really focused on. Um, so broadly speaking, I would say, first of all, that we see a pretty stable outlook across the whole uh, EU. And, and that's a really good thing vis-a-vis where we've been, you know, you know, in the depths of the Eurozone crisis, if you will. So we see uh, every market growing, even though some are growing faster than others. Uh, we still think there's a fair amount of downside risk. A lot of that risk going into the year, we thought, would be ri- uh, built around the political um situation in various markets because we had a number of elections. So far, those elections have um, all come out the right way in terms of, with France being the most recent one, in terms of, uh, you know, stability and 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 uh, and, and pro-growth, if you will, um, pro-euro. Uh, so that's been good. But you still have some, some risk drivers. Um, I think globally, the growth profile is still relatively muted. Um, Europe is very focused in certain countries in particular, very exposed to commodity prices. Um, we still expect a fair amount of uh, foreign uh, currency volatility, especially as the U.S. Uh, continues to, to move towards a, an increased uh, interest rate environment. Um, and then obviously there's the wild cards. You know, we talked about Brexit. There's the Trump wild card, which is getting wilder by the minute. Um, uh, but, you know, quite frankly, all the all the issues that are now facing the administration, I think, uh, to some extent, take away the, the risk of the Trump trade chaos that potentially could have been uh, could have occurred. If um, if if you know the administration wasn't so internally focused right now, mm-hmm. um, and then you have uh, the the thing that I think most folks don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about, which is quite important in Europe, is paying attention to China. Um, and you know the, the we we built something uh, called the the China Sensitivity Index, and it's quite interesting, and we can apply it on in every every country in the world, but it basically shows you know dependency on China or or uh, or no dependency on China. And there are a number of European countries that have a pretty high exposure to China. So, you know, we talk about the scarcity of data and the importance of of keeping track of data. Keeping one eye on China, if you're a European executive or if you're a Latin Latin America executive, is really important because a big part of the world's demand is coming from China. And so the combination of uh, China sensitivity and commodity sensitivity for different countries uh, really will, will be important in terms of setting the backdrop for the uh, ability to, to be successful in those countries. Absolutely. I think paying attention to what China is doing is critical for anyone. And it seems that with the U.S., as you said, internally focused and and but not pro-trade either way, it could have been chaotic. China seems to be wanting to fill that gap that the U.S. is kind of leaving 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think China, you know, China has been a huge uh, part of the the growth engines for a number of economies, both developed and emerging. But I think as the U.S. is becoming a bit more bilateral in its in its thinking, uh, China is is aggressively looking to step in there. And, it, and look, it, it it pays dividends for China because China as a uh, as an economy is 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 slowing, right? And there's no no disputing that. So anything to stimulate or uh, growth or ease that pace of slowing is going to be viewed very positively uh, on a global on the global stage. And so uh, you know I think that's that's quite important. I agree. Let's we'll jump to China in just a second. Was there anything else that you think is a really important part to pay attention to in the EU? Um, basically, you're saying fairly stable, nothing, no real big risks. Are you seeing anything with some of the, um, like the Greeces and the Italys and the Spains? With the yeah, so I, yeah, just to yeah, just to be clear, I, I'm not. I think there is still a fair amount of risk. I think it's you know I think where we are on the risk curve vis-a-vis where we were several years ago, we're in a better place. But there's definitely still some there's some systemic risk in terms of uh, in terms of the the banking system, but it's nowhere near as severe as it was before. Um, and we in fact actually see we're starting to see improved credit. Um, uh, and lending, which is quite important for business and business growth, right? I mean, it sort of greases the uh, the wheels of commerce, if you will. Um, you know, look, I think we see. I think our strategy for our clients in Europe is to really think about Europe um, from a pockets of growth perspective. So again, if you're entering a market for the first time, everything's upside. But if you're in markets already, it's about portfolio allocation and it's about you know the incremental dollar going to the right markets where there's the right pockets of growth, and so we would argue that it requires a an important important to have a portfolio approach, so that you diversify risk and also that you're 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 emphasizing where there's the greatest um, segments that have growth. So it's not just about countries; it's about finding the right segments, uh, product uh, slash customer segments, or uh, or even in some cases geographic segments. Um, we're we're seeing a lot of uh, interest, you know, in some of the faster growing parts of, of Europe. So Central Europe is is growing relatively fast and is relatively insulated from some of the risk areas. Um, there are there are countries in the Middle East that the Middle East is a very attractive market, even though it's going through a fair amount of change. But there are certain certain uh, pockets of of real interesting growth in the Middle East. And then obviously the big frontier in Europe is is Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and you know that's that's a very a mixed bag in terms of uh, of near term outlook. But if you just look at the vastness of the market, uh, and again, it's not one market. There's about 50, 50 plus countries that you need to kind of think through, and picking your spots carefully um, uh, is important there. But we're seeing a lot of interest in uh, East Africa in particular. Very interesting. Let's do jump to Asia now. What are some of the key trends there? Obviously, China is the big. Um, the gorilla, if you will, and but in India is very yeah. interesting. Singapore and yeah, I think it's a it's really a fascinating part of the world because if you look at it uh, just uh, from a macro perspective, Asia is still the the world's growth engine, right? It's the fastest parting, uh, fastest growing part of the world. And just to put that in perspective, you know, like our our GDP forecast for uh, for Asia is four point six percent as a as an aggregate this year. Uh, and if you contrast that with Western Europe, where it's uh, you know one and a half to two percent, or Latin America, which is coming out of recession, Brazil and, uh, and Argentina, but it's still only like one and a half percent. 
um, you know, Asia stands out as, uh, and North America, let's say broadly in the two, two and a half percent range, right? So Asia stands out as, as still the growth engine. So that's very attractive. And what drives that is really, I think, three, three core markets, China, which we've talked about. It's slowing, but it's still so big and it's growing fast. And I think there's a, a difference in China if you're in the B2C sector versus the B2B sector. I think that's quite important. Um, India, uh, where we see uh, acceleration, and um, and India's always been this really fast-growing market. But I think what's happened now is with Prime Minister Modi, you have a, a pretty uh, good uh, momentum around reform agenda, and also I think a commitment to easing the, the complexities of doing business in India. Mm-hmm. So I think there's this very interesting battle that uh, we'll, we'll see play out in, in terms of uh, multinational or company expansion, even the SMEs, about where do I where do I where do I prioritize over the next five ten years? Because China's on a slowing curve and India's on an accelerating curve, and and both countries are quite large. And then the third pillar is ASEAN, the Southeast Asia market. So you mentioned Singapore, but if you really look across the the five biggest Southeast Asian countries. Um, together, they represent about the size of uh, about the size of India. So um, you've got these three huge uh, markets that are in various stages of growth, acceleration, and ease of uh, ease of um, uh, outside Western companies being able to do business in them. And they're very attractive, and we see a lot of interest in Singapore as really kind of a launching pad to the you know Malaysian market and the. Absolutely, market. it's a it's a it's a great um, it's a great uh, we have our we have our and many of our clients have their headquarters in Singapore. We have our uh, Asia headquarters in Singapore, and I would say that if you look across our our client our Asia client base, uh, probably sixty percent are are headquartered in Singapore, um, and it, it's partially because it's a very easy place to set up business and also to uh, attract uh, attract talent to want to work there. Um, but it's also a perfect launch pad for uh, managing the portfolio um, in a uh, in a careful way. And so we we see a lot of um, a lot of opportunity uh, across uh, across the Southeast Asia markets hub hubs from from Singapore. Absolutely. You know, another we we always ask our customers what areas they're interested in. And you had touched a little bit on the Middle East, but surprisingly, behind China and India, it's it's. Um, the Middle East. And it's really, that was very surprising to us that we're really getting consistent requests for more and more information about how to do business while there. So let's talk a little bit about some of the trends that you see. Yeah. Middle East is a, is a, you know, super attractive market. It, it's grown uh, very rapidly. Um, and it's, and it's a very, uh, generally, a, a resource rich, um, market, right? And so that's been very helpful, but that's also been a little bit of a curse uh, lately, right? Because as the oil price um, uh, has come under pressure uh, substantially, and we, we don't see that changing anytime soon, uh, the Middle East uh, picture longer term starts to shift a little bit. And so um, because so much of the budgets come from, uh, especially in most of the countries that are oil exporters, most a lot of the budgets come from, uh, you know, uh, from the oil uh, revenue stream, and so that has implications to um, public spending longer term. It has some implications to how to do business in these countries because as they start to think about diversifying their economies, there's going to be a lot more emphasis on um, localized 
products localized, talent pools. And so as you're, you're doing business in these markets, you have to be really thoughtful not only about the headline attractiveness of the size of the market and the wealth and the size of the population, but also what's it going to be like doing business there five, 10 years from now and make sure that your strategies are properly aligned in terms of that localization uh, agenda, which is, which is a real agenda and, it, and it's quite serious. So we've got some great reports and um, on the on the Middle East and specifically looking at uh, the Saudi market and looking looking over the horizon, you know, through 2020 in some of these markets. Very interesting. Now, I would want to touch on just I think well, there's a number of other markets we could go into, but I, I do want to touch on the the U.S. or at least North America and what are you seeing from outside in? I know that there are some. Um, some, there's some challenges with the new administration and their perspective on trade and that sort of thing. But are you seeing that as a major impact to desirability? What are the risks associated for you know internationals coming into the uh, North American market? Yeah, I I don't think it's uh I don't think that there's you know I think there's a lot of noise, but I think if you think about if I'm an international uh, company and I and I want to prioritize uh, Western markets, I think the U.S. because of the size of the market, the um, you know the transparency of the market, um, and the the general you know policies uh, for biz- doing business in the market, I, I think it's a hugely attractive market, and I think it's one where you know the concern is going to be um how and 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 especially for certain sectors you know i think it's quite important to think about the world not only geographically but in terms of of different sectors and so depending on the sectors like if you if you if you have uh, an opportunity to um contribute to what hopefully will end up happening in terms of a infrastructure boom in the us right i mean it, we've been talking about this for some time um, the hope was that that would get on the agenda the legislative agenda this year it feels like that might get pushed but you know, there's going to need to be a fairly sizable infrastructure boom in the U.S. A lot of that uh, prioritization with this current administration will probably go on go towards local companies, but there's still an opportunity for outside uh, outside companies to to participate substantially in that. As an example, so I think the real risk of the U.S. is how long can the country, uh, its economy, keep keep chugging along, even though it's not growing necessarily rapidly. Before we we you know cyclically hit some sort of a recession, and what does that mean in terms of uh, where you are in your investment cycle, investing in the market? Absolutely, this is all interesting. I could talk about this and learn from you all day, but you didn't um, ask about Latin America, which is uh, also quite an interesting place these days. Well, absolutely. No, we have enough time. Let's do, let's do touch on Latin America, mostly because well, reason, it's, I'm not as familiar. Oh. We haven't opened those markets, and they are so complex. They are, but a lot of our uh, North American clients, the you know the the natural first port, ports of expansion will be uh, into into Europe, like into developed Europe, Western Europe, and then we'll also be uh, into Latin America, just because you can manage it um, relatively. Um, uh, well, nothing's easy, but you can manage it through you know from from North America. Um, and so I think you know Latin America has um, really been an interesting place because it was growing super fast. Um, and a lot of that was driven by China. So just to illustrate, you know, the importance of keeping an eye on the global linkages here. And then when China started to slow down and demand for commodities started to, to the commodity super cycle start in, we saw, you know, the, some of the bigger Latin America markets uh, start to suffer from, uh, you know, from that. And so you've got this interesting recovery play happening right now in Brazil. 
and in Argentina, um, which are quite interesting. But the, 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 on the flip side of that, a, a country like Mexico, which had been a very predictable and stable market for, for so long as, a, as a one of, you know, basically most, most countries' Latin America portfolios are built around Brazil and Mexico first and then everything else kind of uh, accordingly. Um, and Mexico was a pretty predictable market. But between the, uh, you know, the election of uh, President Trump in the United States and the, and the, and the rhetoric and, and um a political a policy risk around NAFTA, and then in Mexico itself, just some internal um, political uh, um, uh, elections coming up with what feels like uh, you know a, a, a change happening. There's a lot more uncertainty around Mexico, and, and we did a poll recently of our Latin America clients, and Mexico was, uh, and actually global, I'm sorry, it was global clients. Mexico was the number one market globally that they were most concerned about, which was shocking. That, that topped Russia and it topped China in terms of uh, what they felt where their greatest risk was over the next year. So I just wanted to raise that because I thought it was interesting. Absolutely. That is really interesting. I would not have thought that, but I can understand. No, it's probably the biggest shift from being very stable to being risky. Yeah, that's right. I think that's what drove it. It's just like we can't, we don't know how, how to think about Mexico until we have clarity in terms of the U.S. trade uh, policies towards Mexico. And uh, until we have clarity in, on the internals of uh, of how elections will play out in Mexico, so those are, Mexico is going to be, uh, you know, an important market to keep an eye on uh, over the next uh, next twelve months. Absolutely. Now, in addition to obviously paying attention to what you're doing with uh, FSG, what are some other things that you do? What are the media that you consume? How do you how do you want how do you suggest companies pay attention to? all of these markets. Do you have any thoughts on some great blogs or good media that you pay attention to? Yeah, I so I I think that there's a few ways to do it. I mean, there's so much information. I think that um I think that the you know what I tend to focus on, I, I read uh New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. I think the FT does a very good job and has a good blog on emerging markets. I think the journal as well. Um, and then I, you know, the Economist I think is a is a very good uh, newspaper for covering these markets and what's happening. Um, and then uh, we we also we we've, uh, some, one thing I do is we we actually have um, a curated news um, process here in, in within FSG. So our analysts um, all read various local uh, news sources, and then what we do is we allow them to uh, post articles onto our clients' website. Our, our, our client uh, portal, if you will, um, with their own perspective on it. So I love reading that because I get kind of a, a, a filtered view around the world uh, tied back to what, how our views are emerging and changing. And then we also have a blog and a newsletter, and we also do our own uh, podcast series. And that uh, you know is a good way to keep track in, a, in a, I think, a, a fairly focused uh, manner. So those are some of the, the ways we, we do it. Mm, thank you. Yeah, let's do share some of those resources. What is the best way for companies to engage with you at FSG, whether it's um, your website, your blog, your podcast? Uh, it'd be great to have some of those resources available to us. Yeah, sure. I would uh, th- appreciate that. I think the, the, the website has the, uh, the store where, uh, you know, you can browse for reports. And obviously, if there's any questions, uh, always just can, can give us a call. Um, we get lots of inquiries um, it, it, through um, uh, just the in, info, info at frontierstrategygroup.com email address, which is our kind of uh, initial 
inquiry uh, email address. Our blog is called Emerging Markets Insights, um, and we publish on the blog anywhere from three to five times a week. And so you can sign up and uh, you can just go to it and browse it for free, but you can also sign up so that um, when, when posts are, are made, you get, you get a, a push a notification around that, as well as uh, you'll get a quarterly newsletter um, as well. And then our podcast station is on iTunes and it's called Emerging Markets Insights, just like the blog. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there's a, you know, typically a handful of podcasts uh, each, uh, every couple of weeks that we put up from around the world. So I think those are some of the, the free resources as well as uh, ways to learn more. Mm, absolutely. Well, Richard, I do want to thank you so very much for joining us today. We're going to wind down the podcast at this point. Um, join Everyone join us next time for other fantastic podcasts on going global faster, easier, more affordably, and more successfully. We will post all of these resources that Richard shared with us so that you can get them easily and link off of them. From, um, from the Globig sites as well. This is Anka Corbin, hoping that you all go global and go big. Thank you.